0: Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, as we look to your word, Lord, may our eyes, may our eyes look to you. For, O oh Lord, if we are to profit from this word, if we're to truly benefit from this word, Lord, we require your grace. So, O oh Lord, we pray that you would bless us that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would present the challenges that are in this text to us, and give us the grace, O Lord, uh, to uh, to follow. Uh, to these ends, Lord, we pray in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, "Amen." Our text this morning really could be, um, I mean, structurally speaking, it could be divided into two parts. There is a question in verse one, and then there's a response, uh, verses two, three, and four. Uh, very simple a question and a response. And uh, typically, when uh, questions are asked, we have a tendency to emphasize the answers. Uh, we emphasize the answer, we uh, sometimes will hone in very keenly in on the answer, and that's a good thing, that's, that's, uh, that's what we should be doing. But occasionally there are questions that are asked uh, that uh, we would benefit from studying themselves. Uh, sometimes you, you gain a lot just by studying the questions, uh, even in preparation uh, for the answer. And I would submit to you that uh, our text that we've come to this morning is one such occasion, where I think it would do us really well to take a minute, uh, before we run headlong into Jesus' response to the question, uh, to take and uh, study this question for a moment. So, our outline this morning will be inductive. It's going to be really twofold. We're going to look at the nature of the question that's asked to Jesus, and then we're going to look at the nature of the response that Jesus gives uh, to this question. Let's start with the first. And before we get to the question, there is some background information that's necessary uh, to this question. This story is told uh, by. Mark and Luke as well, and in both in Mark's testimony and Luke's testimony, we're told that the disciples have been arguing with each other. They've been arguing about which one of them is the greatest, and it's kind of—I know it's kind of comical—they're arguing about which one of them is greatest, and Jesus knows is fully aware of what they're talking about. He's fully aware of what they're arguing about and discussing, and. And he asks them, what are you you discussing amongst yourselves? And their response is the question in Matthew 18 and verse 1. Their response is, well, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What do we learn from that question? What do we learn from uh, from what the disciples ask Jesus? The first thing that we learn is that uh, there's a great misunderstanding In terms of the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating on behalf of the disciples, they're they're not getting it. Uh, They simply don't understand the type of kingdom, the nature of the kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate. And uh, as we study the the discourse between Jesus and the uh, disciples, we'll find that this misunderstanding uh, goes uh, all the way to the ascension of Jesus. What do I mean by the ascension of Jesus? After Jesus is crucified and after He's raised on the third day, uh, a short period of time afterwards, uh, Jesus is taken into heaven. And He is seated in session at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And that is what we refer to as the ascension. And it is recorded for us in the first chapter of the book of Acts. And we are told that when Jesus is taken, that the disciples are with Him. And the very last thing that they ask Jesus, as Jesus is being taken, is, Lord, are you going to restore Israel at this time? Now, what do they mean by that? Well, their minds are still on this idea of a earthly, worldly kingdom. Uh, What they have in mind is this uh, breaking away from Roman rule, if you will, and kind of a return to the heyday of Israel under the leadership of King David. That's that's what they have in mind. Uh, They're still missing the nature of the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. And because they have this worldly and earthly kingdom in mind, what are they doing where they're jockeying for a position in it? They want to get a nice little seat in this little kingdom, you know? I want to get a little... I'd like to have a nice little spot here. That's what's going on. Uh, that's what they're, they're doing. Now, with all of that having been said, you know, there's a kind of deception to their question, isn't there? Their, dis- their question is really kind of deceiving. I think we can all relate to it. When Jesus says, what are you discussing? They say, oh, we're, uh, we're discussing who would be the greatest in the kingdom. If we didn't have Luke's testimony and we didn't have Mark's testimony and all we had was just verse 1 of chapter 18 of Matthew, we might come to the conclusion, probably would come to the conclusion, that they're just being curious. But There's a whole lot more going on here than just being curious, isn't there? You see the deception of the question? The question is kind of engineered to kind of hide all that other stuff, isn't it? When Jesus says, what are you talking about? No one comes forward and says, hey, we're talking about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And I happen to think it would be me, but he's saying it's him, and he's saying it's him. and he's saying, Come on, Jesus, settle the matter. That isn't what they say, is it? They say, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You see the deception there? And the intent of the deception is to cover up the problem. What's the problem? The problem is pride, isn't it? I mean, as we think this through, and we think it through in terms of the context of what we've been studying through Matthew, Look how far away this is from the idea of a suffering Messiah and a suffering Savior. Look how far away this is from the idea of denying oneself and taking up their cross and following Jesus. And I think that by now we're probably already able to relate with what's going on here. You know, so much of the time we read the Bible and we think, what's this got to do with us? How can we relate here? And then we start studying the Bible and the Bible comes out and stings us right in the heart, doesn't it? How we like to have positions of status, you know, in the workplace, titles and all the like, you know, we like that kind of stuff, don't we? Uh, titles and positions and, you know, uh, an application of this, we see that the disciples are arguing. If we look at Mark and Luke, uh, we see that pride actually is, 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 um, it's doing damage to their relationship with one another and it's doing damage to their relationship with Christ. And for that matter, I would, I would submit to you that I think that all of our relationship problems with one another and our relationship problem, problems with the Lord, uh, I think every single one of them involves pride, doesn't it? I've been all week long trying to think of an example where pride isn't involved. What causes those annoyances at the workplace so much of the time? It's pride. What causes us to annoy people? Oftentimes it's our pride. What keeps us from responding correctly to these annoyances? What keeps us from responding in a Christ-like way? It's usually pride, isn't it? That's the interesting thing about Jesus, you know. Lots of terrible things are being done to him. He's being insulted all over the place. But notice how gracious he always is. He's humble. He's very, very humble, isn't he? We learn a lot from the question, don't we? We haven't even started on the response. Let's let's look at the response. Verses 2 and 3, let's start there. Calling to himself a child, Jesus put the child in the midst of all of them and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins with an object lesson, doesn't he? It's kind of like one of those lessons, you know, when you have a children's sermon, you call the kids up front, you know, and the the pastor or youth leader or youth worker has a some kind of thing or do dad or something, and they point to it and they try to make some type of spiritual lesson out of it. Uh, if I might digress just for a moment, when I was in seminary, I took all of the courses that were offered on Christian education. I just have an intense amount of interest in Christian education. Obviously, I'm a teacher, I'm a preacher. Uh, teaching is what I love to do. And uh, I remember in one of those classes, um, it was, a, it was a module on youth ministry, on children's ministry. And um, we were looking at child development, and the professor made a lot of noise about object lessons. He says, Listen, fellas, if you do object lessons, he says, I'm going to tell you right now, congregation's going to love them. He says, If you're doing them, you're going to look out at the congregation, and they're going to be on the edge of their seats checking out everything that you're doing. But as you're looking at the children, they're going to be sitting there looking at you like you're from Mars. Why is that? It's because the age group that is typically called forward in in one of those type of messages, their minds haven't developed enough in order to put together the symbolism, to put together the illustration. Their minds just aren't quite there yet. Adults, on the other hand, I mean, we get it. In fact, uh, uh, we might even like that better than the sermon. Uh, and I think it's interesting. Jesus is not calling children forward here, is He? He's got a little object lesson. It's almost kind of like a children's sermon, if you will, for adults, you know. What's the object of, of this uh, object lesson? It's a child, And judging from the word that Matthew uses in the context of the whole, this uh, child is probably not more than two or three years of age. Probably about uh, Adeline's age, if you will. And uh, Jesus brings the child uh, before everybody. And uh, what does He say? He says, Truly I say to you, unless... See that word, unless? That's an important word here. Uh, Unless is a condition word, isn't it? I mean, unless uh, is pointing... It's setting up a condition. You know, if this particular condition isn't met, then what follows isn't going to happen. Uh, Jesus says, unless... Okay. You turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, unless... You turn. Now, some of you, if you have a uh, New King James translation or if you have the King James translation, uh, you'll have the word converted. I think the King James, the Old King James, goes something like this except ye be converted. Uh, the New King James probably reads, unless you are converted. Uh, that idea of turning and conversion, uh, if you will. Uh, is in view here. I have a quote from a man by the name of J.C. Ryle. Those of you who know me know that I, I respect this old preacher. He was preaching in the 19th century. He wrote these comments in regards to this verse. He says, quote, "...let these words sink down deeply in our hearts. Without conversion, there is no salvation. We all need an entire change of nature." Of ourselves, we have neither faith nor fear nor love towards God. We must be born again. Of ourselves, we are utterly unfit for dwelling in God's presence. And then he goes on to say, heaven would be no heaven to us if we were not converted. Uh, End of quote. In theology, we often make a distinction when we're talking about conversion. Not always, but most theologians make this distinction. And they make a distinction between what God does and what we do. And on God's side of it all, uh, conversion is often called regeneration. And regeneration is that mysterious work that God does in the heart of a person to change their interests and their desires, uh, to radically change a person's interest from loving that which is wrong to loving that which is right. Uh, Changing a person from being uh, finely tuned into uh, the things of the world to being finely tuned into the things of God. This has to happen. If this doesn't happen, then all of this stuff just uh, is just going to go over our heads. It's going to be kind of like an exercise program or a diet or something. I know I should be doing that, but uh, that's, that's all the more there's going to be to it. But once a conversion, once that regeneration, once that secret and mysterious work takes place in the heart of a person, well, then it's more than a diet. It's more than an exercise program. It's something you have to do. You can't not do. Your desires, your interests, everything is turned upside down and you're changed. Now, that's the divine side of it. On the human side of it, well, you turn. You make a decisive choice to to turn. We often refer to that as conversion. I converted. I can remember very distinctly a time in my own life when I was going this direction. And God was behind me. And then that secret work of God working in my heart changed my interest and I conscientiously turned and I started going this way. That's what's in view here. This conversion. Jesus is telling the disciples to turn and become like children. What what does he mean by becoming like children? Some people will chime in and say, well, this is what Jesus means. Jesus means that we need to become innocent and pure like children. uh, Innocent and pure. And this is really embraced today. Uh, It's strongly embraced. Uh, Whenever you discuss this, if you... If you go contrary to that idea, expect some resistance because that is strongly embraced today. But we must reject that interpretation because it will not stand up under the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture. And Jesus is not going to teach something that is contrary to the rest of Scripture. The Scripture teaches us that we're born in sin. It's not a real nice teaching. It's not something that's fun for me to do, but it's teaching that is necessary. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I was lousy at baseball. My goodness, I, I was terrible. I was never going to be any kind of ball player. If I would have worked as hard as I possibly could, I would have maybe worked my way up to being the worst ball player on the team. I'm not sure what I was uh, without all that work and effort. Uh, baseball wasn't for me. Basketball wasn't for me. These kinds of things just weren't for me. But you want to know what I was really good at that came naturally to me? Rebelling against my parents. They're both here. They will talk to them after church. They'll tell you all about it. I didn't have to be taught to do that. That just came natural to me. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that I have a lot of company in this department. Am I correct? Did anybody have to teach you to rebel against your parents? Or is that something that just seemed like it came natural to you? Why did it come natural to you? Because it is natural. That's the way we're born into this world. That's the nature. That's clearly what Scripture teaches. That's clearly what we see everywhere, isn't it? David in Psalm 51 says that I was conceived in sin. Or in sin, my mother conceived me. And there's an interesting passage in, in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3 where Adam fathers a son in his likeness after his image. That's an interesting text. And it's, and it's playing after Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 where we have this little sneak uh, peek into a conversation that goes on in the Trinity, if you will. Uh, The Trinity is discussing, let us make man in our image and in our likeness we shall make him. And that's what they do. That's what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in concert do. They create man. We have the the creation account at the end of Genesis 1. We have the creation account in Genesis 2, the creation of man. And then along comes Genesis 5. What happens between Genesis 5 and Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? Adam falls, doesn't he? He falls. He becomes a rebel. And that's what he passes on to all his children afterwards. That's why we don't have to be taught to rebel against our parents. That's the nature as we're born into this world. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, that we, prior to conversion, we are all children of wrath, sons of disobedience. We see it taught all over the Scriptures, and we see it every day. That's why we have to be converted. So if Jesus is not talking about innocence and purity here, as He's calling us to become like children, what is He talking about? Well, fortunately for us, we don't have to guess, because if we look at verse 4, He comes right up and tells us, He says, whoever humbles himself like this child, whoever humbles himself, it's humility. And the context has set us up for this, hasn't it? The disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. No, you're not. I'm greater than you are. I'm going to be the greatest. No, you're not. You're not greater than me. Someone else chimes in and says, I'm greater than both of you. Probably an exaggeration, a little bit. Uh, The context. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's humility, but I I want you to notice how Jesus turns their question around. Here they are, discussing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and it's almost as if Jesus says, whoa, whoa, slow down, everybody, stop. Before you concern yourself about which one of you is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, I think talking the way you're talking, you might want to consider whether you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven or not. Why don't you just concern yourself with getting in there? Now, in conclusion, let's put all this together. What is Jesus driving at? What aspect of, of, of this child that he has in his midst does he want us to turn to? It's the aspect of humble dependence upon God. It's that aspect of humble dependence upon the Father. As I was thinking about the conclusions, thinking about how I was going to wrap all this up, an image kept coming to my mind over and over again. I can remember when Kiera was just learning to walk. She lived with us during that time. And I, I remember her, shes. She she would take these steps, but she would never take those steps unless I I was there and I was close by and she would put her hand out. She would put her hand out ready for me and I would take her hand and then she would take those steps. What was she doing? She was trying to learn how to walk. But do you want to know what she wasn't doing? She wasn't doing it independently of me. And that's the aspect that Jesus is pointing to here. That's the way we are when we're that age. Whatever I told Kiara, that's what she believed. She didn't question it. Whatever I said, that's what she believed. She didn't question it. And it's really a beautiful image, isn't it? And that's the image that Christ is calling us to very graphically, isn't it? Come on, fellas, quit worrying about who's going to be the greatest here. You're missing the whole thing. That self-sufficiency and all that nonsense, you've got to turn from that. I want you to look at this little child. He doesn't do anything apart from his father. And unless you turn, you're not even going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father... Lord, we call on you, and we ask, O Lord, for the grace that we would indeed turn as you have instructed us to do so, Lord. We see the beautiful imagery, Lord, that you you have put forward. We all can relate. We all can see it so visibly, Lord, because of this object lesson that you've given us. But, O Lord, how hard it is, how hard it is to deny ourselves and to forsake ourselves had to lean on You. Lord, we must have Your grace. So we call on You, O Lord, that You would fill our hearts with grace afresh this morning, that these proud thoughts that we have of self-sufficiency, and of laboring out, uh, apart from You, these rebellious thoughts, Lord, drive them away, crucify them, and make us O Lord, in the image of Christ, who did nothing without You. And We pray to these ends in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen.